Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, good morning. All right, good. Hey, hey, thank you guys so much for coming out and worshiping with us. My name is Byron. I get the privilege to serve as the lead pastor and church planter every single week. If you're a guest, I want to say thank you so much for taking your time to come out and worship with us. We know there's lots of amazing churches. We know there's lots of places that you could be today, but you've chosen to come and worship with us. So I want to say thank you so much. Um, We are in the final week of a series as we're walking through um, the parables, taking a look at the stories that Jesus tells as he tries to reveal the kingdom of God. That's the purpose that Jesus came, that Jesus comes to reveal the kingdom of God so you and I can experience new life, new life in him, new life with him. And that's the purpose behind the parable. So throughout the series, we've looked at um, Jesus' first stories. We've looked at his most famous of parables. And today we're going to be looking at the final parable that Jesus teaches. This is at the very end of his life and ministry. He's just days away from his crucifixion. He's in Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, and he's going to be crucified for our sins and for the sins of the entire world. So this is one of the last parables that Jesus tells. So it's very important. How many of you guys have had someone close to you pass away, right? When you're in the hospital with them or maybe just thinking about the last conversation that you had with that person, last words are very important, aren't they? And so these are the last words that Jesus tells his disciples before his death. So I want for us to look at them. I want for us to lean in, to listen, and to learn from exactly what it is that Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God. And so let me say this as well. Today is going to be a pretty sober word. It's going to be sobering because we're going to be looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, We're going to be looking at a story that Jesus tells about himself. The parable here is called the wicked tenets. And so it's going to be a sober word, but it's also going to be an encouraging word. And much like the Christian life, if you endure to the end, you're going to be very encouraged. So I just just want to encourage you to hang with me and let's walk through this and let's see exactly what it is that Jesus is saying and what this means for our own life. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to get started and take a look at the parable of the wicked tenets. If you got your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 20, starting in 9. While you're finding that, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, Lord, for sending your Son. Lord, you have sent your Son to give us the ability and the opportunity to be able to have a new life, to be able to respond to you, to receive your kingdom and redemption, to be able to know that change is possible and that no matter what we have done against you, you respond to us with love and compassion and grace. Father, I thank you for the 14-plus people today who are going to be raised to new life with you through baptism. Lord, what a joyous celebration to know that you do still change lives. And we pray to you and we praise you for all of this. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. We'll start off with Jesus telling the story. And he, being Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. Now that's where we get the theme for this series, parable. It's a short story with a big idea. It's Jesus' favorite way of revealing the kingdom of God. And so Jesus turns to the crowd, to the people who are around him, and then he tells them this parable. And this is what Jesus says. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenant so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Basically, pay rent. But the, tenant, the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully. And then he sent another servant. And they sent him away empty-handed. So he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. 
Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. That word's very important. Beloved son. Hold on to that. Perhaps they will respect him. But the tenants saw him and they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And then they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, at the time of telling this story, Jesus is days away from his crucifixion. That right after this story, Judas is going to betray him. And then one of his other disciples, Peter, is going to deny him. So think about it. God becomes a man in Jesus and he's betrayed by his very best friends. So one seeks to destroy him and the other seeks to deny him. But this was basically Jesus's life for three years. And at the time of this story, and throughout all the parable series, we've seen that there's been great crowds that have followed Jesus everywhere he goes. But not everyone in the crowd actually loves Jesus. Some people are opposed to him. Not everybody who follows Jesus really follows him. Not everybody is friends with Jesus. Some people are foes towards Jesus. Some people are his enemies. And as Jesus is telling the story, no one recognized who Jesus was during the time of his earthly life and ministry. And that's the reason that Jesus tells the parables to begin with. See, they had followed him, but they never actually followed him. They knew him, but they didn't actually know him. They came out to see him and to see the teachings and preachings and miracles, but they didn't actually see who Jesus was. And it's for this reason that Jesus tells the parables to begin with. He quotes the prophet Isaiah in saying that the people will always be seeing, but they will never be perceiving. The people will always be hearing, but they will never actually listen. And so for those of us who have an open heart and an open mind, when Jesus tells us these stories, the kingdom of God is revealed to us. We know who he is, we know what he's done, and we know how we are to live in light of that. But for those of us with a closed heart, with a closed mind, the kingdom of God is actually concealed from us. So depending on where your heart is, the kingdom will be revealed or concealed from you. And that's the purpose that Jesus tells this parable. And so he tells them one last parable. He tells them one more story so that they can see their lives and all of human history from the perspective of God. And so in this story, what Jesus is actually telling us is he's telling us his story. He wants us to see all of our lives and everyone who lived from the perspective of God. That's the perspective we need to see when we're studying this story. Now, we're not encouraged to see our life from God's perspective. In our day and age, everybody sees their life from their own perspective. Everybody has their own story, right? Everybody has their own bend, their own angle, their own agenda. We all have our side of the story. We tend to see our lives from our perspectives. Whatever's happening to you, whatever you're going through, whether good or bad, we tend to have our own side of the story. But what's interesting is that whatever you're going through typically involves other people, and they tend to have their own side of the story as well. And so what we need to see is that there's really three sides to every story. There's your side, there's their side, and then there's God's side. And so we need to see our lives in history from God's perspective, from God's side of the story. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a step back, and the only way that we're able to do this is if we ask ourselves this question, who am I in this story? That's the way that we interpret the parables. Which of these characters best represents my life? So basically, we've got to ask ourselves, who am I in this story? So let's take a look at the characters. So who's the first person we see in the story? We see the owner, okay? He owns the vineyard. He planted it. He nurtured it. He cultivates it. He creates it. So the owner owns the vineyard. It's his. So who do you think the owner is? God. God's the owner. You guys got to go back to Sunday school. Come on. God is the owner. 
right? Everything belongs to him. He created this universe. He created the world. He created you and me. God made everything that we see. He made the plants and the trees and the animals, the stars, the universe. He made the mountains. He even made our lives. So everything in this world belongs to him. And that even extends down into our personal life. So our house, our car, our job, our family, our bodies, everything we have ultimately belongs to God. The philosopher Abraham Kuyper He says that there's not one square inch of this universe in which God does not declare mine. So God is the owner. And we also see that God is the father. That God is the father, that the owner happens to be the father. And that he loves and he cares and he he cultivates, he nurtures, he responds towards his children. And we see that the father here has a son. And so the father loves the son. The father endears towards the son. The father is affectionate. So what we see here is that God's the owner but he's also the father. And this is totally unique to Jesus's life and ministry. Now, in the Old Testament, God is hardly ever referred to as father. Maybe about a dozen times does it ever talk about God as father, and it's always in a national sense. It's never personal. But then Jesus comes on the scene, and then Jesus starts talking about God as a father. So there's a relationship. There's this affection that you and I have towards God. This is why he says, when you pray, pray like this, our father. And when Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that he has a relationship, that God is not distant, God is close. God is not far, God is near. God is not this impersonal force that just floats through the the atmosphere. No, he's a father, and he loves you with the love and the affection of a father. So God's the owner, God's also the father. Okay, so next, what's the vineyard? Who's the vineyard? Well, in one sense, the vineyard is creation. It all belongs to him. God created it, God owns it, God cultivates it, he brings the nourishment, he brings the growth. So in one aspect, it's all of creation. But specifically here, it's referring to the nation of Israel. That the nation of Israel is the vineyard that God planted. Now, everyone listening to this story, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus is telling it, they'd recognize, oh, that's me. You're talking about the nation of Israel. Because to them, their sign of their nationality would have been the vineyard. See, back in the Old Testament, again, the prophet Isaiah, he says that you are my vineyard, I am the vine keeper, and I bring you growth. I tend to you. And so the the vineyard would have been the representation of the nation of Israel. Jesus also says that I am the vine, you are the branches. Everyone there, they would have understood this. It's the same way that if you were in another country and you see the American flag with the stars and the stripes, you say, oh, hey, there's my people. Right? That's the same way that the people would have heard this. They would have said, oh yeah, we're the vineyard. Okay, Jesus, you're talking about us. And so they get it. So we see that a man owns a vineyard, and then he leases it out to tenants. So what is a tenant? Okay, do any of you guys rent? You rent a house, you rent your apartment, condo, dorm, lease a car? Okay, so you know what it means to be a tenant. Right? It's when you rent. Me and Ashley, we don't own our home. Like We rent. The homeowner lives out of state, and he allows us to be able to live in his house. Granted, we pay the rent. And so we get to live in his house. We get to have you know, a decent place to live and be able to raise our family as long as we pay our rent. That's how tenants work. And so here's what happens. The tenants, they get the land. Things begin to go pretty well. They got a decent house. They have a decent life, and the land begins to be fruitful. And so the first thing that they stop doing that we see is they stop paying their rent. Just so you know, bad idea, right? If you stop paying your rent, it's not going to end well for you. So they stop paying their rent, and then they start doing some remodeling projects, maybe some renovations. You know, they, they, they knock down a couple of walls, 
right? They put carpet over the hardwood floor, which is a sin, by the way. I don't know if you know that or not, just so you know. They start painting the outside. They dig up the garden. You know, things you're not supposed to do if you don't own the home. So what do you call it when someone takes what isn't theirs, does whatever they want with it, with no thoughts or repercussions towards themselves, basically say, what's not theirs is mine. What do we call that? That's stealing. That's stealing. And that's, that's what they did. They say, this is not mine, but I'm going to treat it as if it is. I'm calling this mine. And that's kind of the same thing that we do in our own lives. That we get busy in our own life. We say, this is my life. I can do what I want, when I want. Nobody can tell me what to do because this life is mine. So we, we tend to be the same way. And when we have that disposition in our lives, that's not a servant heart, that's a tenant heart. That it's, it's corrupt, it's, it's crooked, it's wicked. So who are these wicked tenants? Wicked tenants are the religious leaders, the rebellious people, and the false teachers of Jesus' day. That's who the wicked tenants are. They're the people that follow Jesus, but they actually oppose Jesus. They're the people who sought conflict with him throughout all of his life and ministry. Jesus is constantly engaged with rebellious and the religious false teachers of his day. And wherever Jesus would go, they would show up. And so when you're reading through the Gospels, it becomes pretty easy for you to think, without, without any background, for you to think, oh, well, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, like those are the good guys, right? They're moral. They're very religious. They're, they're very noble, right? They're very pious, and they seem to be very righteous. So you can look at them based on the outside and think, those are the good guys. But in reality, they're not righteous, they're self-righteous. They're not pious, they're proud. And it's pride that is the greatest sin. And that's what their sin was. Their sin was pride. And because of their pride, they were the most rebellious and wicked sinners during Jesus' life. And here's why religion is so dangerous. Is that they knew who God was, but they didn't know him. That they knew his word, but they didn't live by his word. They had all information, but they had no transformation in their lives. And that's what makes religion so dangerous. And here's, here's what religion is. Religion basically is this. When you take God's word and then you use it for your own selfish desires. That's what religion is. And so God had entrusted these people to be able to lead his people, but instead they were leading others astray. God had entrusted his word to these people to be able to build up and to encourage, but instead they were tearing down and they were discouraging others. That God had given these people his word, his law for protection, but they had turned it into a prison against their own people. They had basically said what God said was his, now we're going to say is ours. This is mine. They took God's creation and they corrupted it. They took God's vineyard and they twisted it. And this is why they are the wicked tenants. So the next question we ask ourselves, if that's the wicked tenant, then, then who would the servants be? Well, if the religious leaders are the wicked tenants, we see here that the servants would be the prophets of the Old Testament. That's who the servants are. That the tenants, they would, they would follow Jesus or they would follow God and then they'd kind of fall away. And every time they would do that, God would raise up a servant, God would raise up a prophet to go to them to give them direction, to give them correction, and to give them guidance. This is basically the history of God's people in a nutshell. Basically, it's this. God makes his people, calls them to be faithful, to be fruitful, and to bring flourishing to all the world. It goes okay for a while, and then they fall away. And then when they fall away, they stop worshiping God, they stop worshiping false gods. They stop following God, they start falling away. And then God would send a prophet the prophet would preach to them and, and lead them into repentance. And they, they'd pick themselves back up and they'd follow God for a little bit longer and then they'd fall away. 
So then they'd walk with God, walk away. Prophet, walk with God, walk away. Repent, reject. Repent, reject. Repent, reject. That's basically the Old Testament. Right? That's how it works. That God's people would just keep walking away from him. He'd keep sending them other people to give them the chance to respond. From the garden, even down to us here in Beaumont, that's typically how God's people work. And so God would send a servant. He'd say, hey, go down there, check out my people. See when they're going to pay up. See when they're going to stop taking advantage of my kindness and my compassion. See what's going on. What are they doing with the place? So then God would send this prophet. Now think about it this way. You own a property. You own a home. Things are going pretty well. But then the people stop paying their rent. And they start trashing the place. And so you turn to a friend and say, hey, go down and check on my, check on my property. See what's going on. When do they plan to pay their rent? When do they plan to get things together? So you send a friend. So the friend goes down there, knocks on the door. They open up the door. They invite him in. And then they beat him up. They black his eye. They break his nose, right? They rough him up a little bit, punch him, kick him, scrape him, kick him out. And then he goes back, and then the owner's like, hey, what happened? How did it go? And you're like, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, kind of bloody, right? It didn't go well. So then the owner turns to another friend and says, hey, you go down there, check on him, see what's going on. Same thing. They beat him up. They punch him, kick him, scrape him, and send him home. And then he comes back, same thing. Friend didn't go very well, so you send another friend and then another friend, and then another friend. And pretty soon, before you know it, you're running out of friends, right? Your friends are like, uh, not answering your calls, screening your calls, not, go- not going, not going. And this is basically what it means to be a prophet, that God would raise you up, he would send you, and he'd give you a message. He would tell the people, repent, turn from your sins. It's not going well. It's not going to end well. You need to turn. You need to repent. And the people would say, no. And then they'd beat them up, and sometimes they would even murder them. It did not go well for the prophets. The prophets' job description was basically you preach, and then you die. That's it. And so God had to call the prophets because nobody volunteered to be a prophet. It's not like you were graduating high school and saw the prophet booth at the job fair, and were like, that's what I want to be. I want to be a prophet. No, nobody signed up to be a prophet. God had to call the prophets because nobody would volunteer. I mean, Jonah, he says, Jonah, you're going to be my prophet to Nineveh. And he's like, uh, no. And he runs in the opposite direction. God calls Isaiah to be his prophet in Isaiah chapter 6. His first question was this, how long? How long is that going to be? How long am I going to be a prophet? He calls Jeremiah from birth because Jeremiah would not do it. And they asked Jeremiah, what was the worst day of your life? Jeremiah says, the day I was born. Like, you know it's not good when the first day of your life also happens to be the worst day. It did not go well for Jeremiah. He was the most depressed dude. He wrote a book of the Bible called Lamentations, which is basically bad high school emo poetry. That's, that's what it is. He's a guy who just walks around wearing all black in the rain and just listens to the cure and obscure indie bands. That's Jeremiah. But that's the heart of a prophet. That's why the prophets were so opposed, because they would go and they would say, you need to repent, you need to change, you need to turn, you need to get right, and the people would say, no. And they rejected the prophets. But before we move on, let's just be honest with ourselves. We're a little bit more like the wicked tenants than we care to admit. Aren't we? Aren't we a little bit more like the wicked tenants than we care to admit? Now, we wouldn't go around and say, I'm a wicked tenant. Nobody's going to say that. But for us, it's more subtle. It's, 
it's slow, it's sure, but it's, it's definitely there. It's a little bit more subtle. See, don't we walk with God and then walk away? Don't we follow him and then we fall away? Don't we say, okay, Jesus, I got it from here. Thanks for all the help. And then we just go back to our old life. We go back to our old life, our old ways, our old nature, our old desires, and we just kind of just do whatever we want with no care, no cost, no repercussion. We stop worshiping. We stop reading our Bibles. We stop praying. We stop giving and serving and being in the church and being in accountability. And we just kind of walk away. But God in his grace never gives up on you. That God keeps sending people your way to say, hey, it's okay, come on back. There's still time. There's still opportunity. We can do this. See, God sends people to serve you all the time. First, he sends you the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts you and leads you and guides you into repentance. And in your heart, when you feel that pinch, when you're doing something you know you're not supposed to do, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you. When you feel that knot in your stomach, right, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you. See, conviction is a good thing, right? Don't be, don't, be, uh, don't be afraid or don't be alarmed when you feel conviction. That's a good thing. Be afraid when you don't. When you stop feeling conviction because you stopped listening, that's when we should be afraid. And so lean into that conviction because you know God's still calling you. So if we ignore the Spirit long enough, then he's also going to send us other people. He'll send us a preacher or a pastor to be able to preach the gospel to us, to give us the opportunity to respond through repentance. He'll also give us the church so we can live in accountability and community and experience new identities. He'll, he'll give us Christian friends who will be inviting us to church and sharing our, their faith with us. And then he'll bring us Christian family members and co-workers, people who can look into your life and say, hey, you know what? It's really not going well. There's some areas that I see that you need some work on. Why don't you come with me? We'll pray together. Let's go to church together. And so when that happens to you, you have a choice that you have to make. Do you repent or do you reject? That's the choice you have to make. Do we repent and say, hey, you know what? You're right. You're right. There are some areas that I need help with. Will you help me? Thank you for pointing that out. Do you repent or do you reject? Do you just say no? See, that's what the wicked tenants did. The wicked tenants, they just took the message that the servants came, and they said, no. And so what does the owner or the father do next? Well, he sends his son. That the owner is still giving them the chance, still giving them the opportunity. He's being gracious towards them. He's being compassionate towards them. And so he says, this time I'm going to send my son. Now, surely, surely they won't reject my son. Surely they will respect my son. Surely they will honor him. That's what they're going to do, right? Now, you need to pay attention to the language that Jesus uses in the story. He says, my beloved son. Okay, that's very important. He's wanting you to know that there is an affection that the father has towards the son, that he loves his son, that he cares for his son. It is his beloved. Some of your translations say the only begotten. It's his only son. It's his beloved son. You need to see this story from the perspective of a parent. They say that when you become a parent, everything changes. Right? And it's absolutely true. I'm a dad to a four-month-old little girl. And when you become a parent, everything in your world changes. The way that you see the world changes. Now me, I like to go for long walks. So I'll go for a long walk in my neighborhood. And I'll just pray and clear my mind and just walk. And I never thought much of it before, but we kind of live on a busy street and cars will drive by like 30, 40 miles per hour. Now, the speed limit in our neighborhood is like 15, 20. Okay, and I never noticed it before, but as these cars are driving by, I'm like, hey, hey, there's kids that live in this neighborhood. 
And now my girl's in the house. Like, she's in her crib sleeping. But still, it's the way that I see the world has changed. Becoming a dad just makes you the guy who stands in the front yard yelling at cars. Like, that's me. That's what I've become. Ashley and I were watching uh, one of those doctor shows on Netflix. And we had seen this episode several times before. And in this episode, the patient was a small child, young child. And the patient died. Before, I always saw it like, oh, look at the medical procedures. Look what the doctors are doing. Here's the story arc. Oh, are they going to do a trach on her? What? You know, that's what I was more focused on. But the time I watched this episode, I put myself in the position of the parent. What would I do if I lost my little girl? What would I do if someone took from me my child? How would I respond if someone killed my kid? What would I do? How would I respond? So you need to see this from the perspective of a parent, that God loves his son, that God sends his son, that God cares for him, and that God is giving us every opportunity, every moment to be able to respond. So who does God send? The son. Now, who is the son? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the son, that God sends his son Jesus to live for our lives, to be able to give us the moment to repent and to respond, to teach us about the kingdom of God. God sends his beloved. God sends his begotten. God sends his son, and what do we do? We kill him. We kill him. Here's what Jesus says about the parable of verse 14. This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. So Jesus, at the time of the story, is days away from his crucifixion. That he's in Jerusalem where he is going to be arrested, tried, and crucified because of the claims he's made about the kingdom of God. And so when you think about Jesus and his death, you need to know Jesus did not die a simple death. Jesus died a painful death. Jesus died a death that was so horrific that even Roman citizens were not allowed to speak of crucifixion because it was so shameful. They couldn't even talk about it publicly. The death Jesus died was the most painful, horrific, horrendous, excruciating death known in the history of the world. It was so bad that they actually invented a word to describe it excruciating. That word literally means from the cross. And so shortly after telling this story, Judas, his disciple, goes out and betrays him. Judas goes out and sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, interesting side note, that's also the same price of a slave. And so then they treat Jesus, the son, like a slave. And they arrest him under the cover of night, because they were cowards and they couldn't do it legally, so they did it illegally. They arrested Jesus under the cover of night. They seized him and they dragged him to the high priest's house. As they bring him to the high priest's house, they make false charges, bogus claims about Jesus, and then they proceed to beat him. And as they beat him, they punch him, they black his eye, they break his nose, crack his jaw, and they hit Jesus while mocking him and spitting on him and ridiculing him. And they ripped his beard out from his face with their own bare hands. And as they beat him and punched him and harassed him, they took a crown of thorns inches long and drove it into his skull. Because what's a king without a crown? 
So they, dra- they drive this crown of thorns into his skull, so he's bleeding from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet profusely. They beat him so bad that his own family could not even recognize him. So they, they keep Jesus awake all night, and then in his exhaustion, without any sleep, they bring him before the Roman government, the Roman officials, where they proceed to scourge Jesus. Now, we don't know what scourging is because we don't do that here in America, but scourging still exists in other places in the world. And they basically took Jesus. It's where they would, they would strip you completely naked. They would tie you to a six-foot post, stretch out every single inch of your body to where all of your skin was exposed. And then they took what's called a flagellum. A flagellum is basically a whip with, with, with several, several pieces on it of metal ball bearings, bone, and hook. And these metal hooks. And when they would hit you with the flagellum, with the whip and the scourging, the metal ball bearings would tenderize the flesh, burst the blood vessels, maybe even break a bone. And then the metal hooks and the bone would rip into the flesh and then pull it off of the person's back. Basically, they would have ribbons of flesh hanging off of their frame, filleting them. And tradition says they did this 39 times. That was Jewish tradition. For them to beat Jesus like this, and as he's laying in a pool of his own blood, the shock of the scourging, they say, would cause, would cause the person to lose control of their bodily functions. And so they would lay there in their blood, in their urine, in their defecation, and they would lay there. Most people didn't survive the scourging. It was so painful, most people died right there on the post. But Jesus survived. And so then they take Jesus, his body, and they throw a robe over him, because what's a king without a robe? Matches his crown. So they take this dirty robe, who knows who wore it before, and they put it on top of his mutilated flesh. So the robe mixes in with the blood, becomes fused to his skin. Then they take a 100-pound crossbar, they lay it across his shoulders, and they have him carry it miles outside of the city or outside of the vineyard to the place of his death. Now, as Jesus walks upon the place of his crucifixion, they take his hands and his feet and his and his arms, and they stretch him out as far as possible. And then they take a spike, a nail, about the size of a railroad spike, and they drive it through the most painful centers of the human body, between the hands and the feet, where the nerves and the muscles and the tendons, they all meet together. And under convulsions and shock, Jesus shook on the cross. They lift him up on the cross. The death of the crucifixion primarily was through asphyxiation. You would drown in your own bodily fluids while hanging. The blood, the tears, the sweat, the vomit, that's how you died through a crucifixion. So so they lifted Jesus up on the cross. God's son, God's beloved, his only begotten, God's son dies. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? I need you to see this from the perspective of a parent, though. Can you see this from the perspective of a parent? That God sends his son. That God loves his son. That God gives us the moment, the chance, the opportunity, and we kill him. See, it's so easy for us 
to be removed from the story of the crucifixion. It's so easy for us to be emotionally unattached from what it is that Jesus actually went through. Because because we hear it all the time. Sure, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose. Yeah, I get it. I understand. Yeah, I've heard the sermons, right? I've read the book, I've seen the movie. I understand, I get it. It's easy for us to become emotionally unattached to what it is that Jesus actually went through. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you don't believe in God, and that's fine. But let me ask you this. When you think about it, I want you to see it from the perspective of a parent, though. What would you think if this is your child? If you watched your son, your daughter, your only child, your oldest, your youngest, the one thing in this world that you love the most, what would you think if this happened to them and you watched it? We need to see this from the perspective of a parent. What is the father going to do? Here's what Jesus says next. In verse 15, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Take this from the perspective of a parent. What would you do if someone did this to your child? See, this is where I, I, I get so confused sometimes. People say, surely not. Right? God wouldn't do that. Words like destroy, don't you think that's a little overreactionary? Don't you think that it's just a little overboard? God wouldn't judge. God wouldn't punish. God wouldn't have wrath. I can't connect to a God who would send people to hell. That's just so, I don't know, I could do that. Well, let me ask you, what would you do if you were God? What would you do if you were God? If I were God, we'd all be dead. Because I tell you, if you come after my little girl, I want vengeance. What would you do if you were God? See, it's not enough for us to have ideas about God. We need to actually put ourselves and have actions behind him. What would you do if you were God? Not just sit there in judgment, but also sit there and to imagine your life from his perspective. If someone were to come after my family, my little girl, you better bet I want justice. See, imagine you met someone and their child was just murdered. And you would say, how's it going? And they'd say, you know, it doesn't really bother me very much. You know, I haven't thought about it in a couple of days. You know, we're still planning our trip to Disney World. I, I, think I'll just, I think I'll just take the murderer along with me. That sounds like a good family vacation. You think, what is wrong with this person? This person is evil. How could someone respond that way to this sort of injustice? You, you'd think something was the matter with them. And now, here's where we get love confused. Because we think that love is just rain, rainbows and raindrops and, and good, warm, fuzzy feelings in our body. But that's not what love is. You think this person never really loved their kid because love also has the purpose of protection. And that love is possible because wrath is also a possibility. That you can't divorce love and wrath because if you love something and that love is violated, is offended, if that love is assaulted and that doesn't bother you, then you never truly had love. You can't separate the wrath of God from the love of God. Because God is love, God is also wrath. Because of the love of God, wrath is also a possibility. Now me, I abhor violence. I hate war. I hate injustice. I hate violence with everything that is in me. Okay, but if you were to come after my family, you better bet I'm going to destroy you. Right, You know, I would shut this church down and do prison ministry from the inside if you come after my little girl. Because, why? Because I'm a person of wrath? No. 
Because I'm a violent person? No, not at all. Because I just hate? No, because I love. And because of what I love is abused or broken or murdered, and that doesn't bother me, there's not true love. My job as a father is to protect, to provide, and to prevent injustice towards my family. And that's God's position towards us as well. You need to see this from the perspective of a parent. See, sin is not just, sin is not a mistake. Okay, sin's not a mistake. A mistake is when you forget to carry the one in long division. That's a mistake. A sin is not a bad decision. A sin is not a bad day. Right? Sin is not, well, I can just do whatever I want. Nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to care. It's not really that big of a deal. That's not what sin is. Okay, sin, sin is an assault against the kingdom of God. Sin is violence against the Son of God. Sin is murder. Sin is death. And sin will be destroyed. And they said, surely not. Surely not. I mean, we've been getting away with it for thousands of years. Nothing bad has happened yet. And Jesus says, not for long. It might be the same for our lives. Well, nothing bad's happening. I'm getting away with it. Nobody's really going to notice. It's not that big of a deal. Jesus says, not for long. See, you're not getting away with anything. The Bible actually says that you're storing up wrath for the day of judgment. You're not getting away with anything. God knows all. God sees all. God judges all. And God is being patient. He's being patient towards us. Now, in your life, don't mistake the grace of God for the patience of God. Okay? God is not being tolerant of our lives and our sin. He's being patient towards us. He's being patient, saying, there's still time. You can still make it right. There's still time. You can still come back. You can still repent. You can still respond. There's still an opportunity. There's still love. You don't have to experience wrath. You can experience grace. You don't have to experience judgment. You can experience blessing. You don't have to experience death. You can experience life and life eternally. There's still time. God is being patient towards us. Amen? He's being patient, giving us every moment, every opportunity to be able to respond. God is being very patient towards us because he loves us. He sends us his son, his son Jesus, to live the life that we never could, to die the death that we deserve, to make the kingdom of God possible and available to everyone. God's sending the Holy Spirit to encourage you, to, to equip you, to be able to convict you and lead you into righteousness and godly living. God is sending the church to you to know there is possibilities for life change. There is community. There is accountability for your life. You don't have to go it alone. God is sending Christian friends to witness and to share their faith with you. God is sending family members to pray for you. God is doing everything in his possibility so that way you could have responsibility through repentance and response of your sins to be forgiven. God is doing all of the work to save you. Don't say no. Don't reject him. Instead, respond. See, God sends his son, and we killed him. His blood is on our hands. That the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of his glorious standard. God's son dies. His blood is on our hands. And the people in the crowd, for the first time in three years of Jesus' life and ministry, they recognize it for the very first time. After, after hearing all of the parables, after hearing all of the stories, we see a shift happen right here in the crowd. And this is, this is what they say. It says in verse 17, 
But he looked directly at them. So you see, it's escalating. Jesus turns, looks directly at him, and he says this to him. What then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So Jesus has been telling parables for three years. Three years telling these stories about the kingdom of God, but they still never understood it. They, they never grasped what it is that Jesus was saying because the kingdom was concealed from them. They had a closed heart and closed mind. They weren't receptive to the teachings of Jesus. And for the first time, they understood it. See, they had rejected Jesus his entire time. That he was like the stone that the builders had rejected. They had no place to put him. They had no category to explain what it was that Jesus was saying. They say he was a priest, but he had power. He was a prophet, but he had authority. There was just something different about the way in which Jesus taught. He didn't fit into the religious customs. He didn't fit into the religious systems. He said things different than anyone else did. Things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Things that nobody had the mental capacity to be able to explain away. And for the first time, they understand what Jesus is saying. That he is the stone. See, in the parable, he says, they're the vineyard. And now he's calling the cornerstone. See, they would have understood this. In the same way that the vineyard represents the religious customs of the Jewish people, the temple also represented the center of the religious worship. So they would come to the temple, which is actually where Jesus is preaching here, and they would perform sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. So they would bring sacrifices and worship. Now, we don't have the temple anymore because we don't need the temple. The temple was destroyed. Now Jesus is our temple, and Jesus is our sacrifice. So we don't need temples and sacrifices. But if you were to go to Jerusalem today, I've never been there, but I've seen the pictures, and it looks pretty amazing. The temple that they built was an engineering marvel. They still don't necessarily understand every, everything that they did to be able to build it. And if you were to look down, you can still see the foundation. You go down about 30 yards, 30 floors deep, and there's these massive stones, the size of railroad cars, up to 100 tons per stone. And it's this engineering marvel. And you can still see the foundation. And tradition says that as they were laying that foundation, there was one stone that didn't fit. They didn't know what to do with it. And so what they did was the builders rejected it. They just tossed it off to the side. They didn't know where to put it. But as they're laying the foundation, they begin to build. What they recognize is the foundation was faulty. So then they had to take it down, and the stone that they had rejected actually was the most important one. The stone that they had didn't, didn't fit actually became the cornerstone, the capstone. It was the most important stone. And so they tore it down, and they rebuilt from there. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm that stone. I'm the stone that's the foundation of your life. I am the stone that is the center of your spiritual worship and practices. I am the truth. I am the stone in which you are to build your life upon. And that they had built their religious customs, they had built their religious systems, they had built their worship and their penance without Jesus. And when you build a life without Jesus, what does he say? It's going to crush you. That everything that they had done in their life is going to fall down on top of them and they will be destroyed. Everything starts with Jesus. If you want a healthy marriage, you start with Jesus. If you want to have purpose in your job, you need to start with Jesus. 
If you want to know direction for college, you need to start with Jesus. If you want to live a life in holiness as a single, you need to start with Jesus. If you want to plant churches, you need to start with Jesus. If you want to go into ministry, if you want to serve, you need to start with Jesus. Friends, everything starts with Jesus. If you build your life without him, it will crush you. See, some of you, you're building your life and and you're wondering why it's all falling down around you. Because you don't have Jesus as the foundation. So you come into church and you say, oh, hurry up, fix my life. It doesn't work that way. So you come to church and you try to squeeze Jesus in. You can't squeeze Jesus in. You have to tear it all down. Some of you, you're just trying to put the pieces together. Don't put the pieces together. Take the pieces apart. Some of your lives, you just need to disassemble the entire thing. Tear it down, rip it down brick by brick and start over with Jesus at the center. And then with Jesus as the firm foundation in which we build our lives upon, that's what it means for us to live in the kingdom of God, for us to recognize who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how we are to live in light of him. Friends, it starts and it ends with Jesus. Whatever you're walking through, whatever you're going through, it starts and it ends with Jesus. Don't reject him, accept him. So as I was reading this story for years, I I never truly understood the parable of the wicked tenants. Whenever I got saved, I was the person who for, for years would say, surely not. Like, that was me. Surely God wouldn't judge. Surely God wouldn't have wrath. Surely God wouldn't respond that way. Surely not. But I still kept reading this parable over and over again. And I I never really understood why this one stood out to me so much. Now, people love Jesus' parables. Okay, They they love them. They, They focus on his first ones and his famous ones. So, like, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son. People love those parables. But we don't tend to focus in on the latter parables of Jesus' life. Because they tend to get kind of heavy. They they tend to get pretty dark. So we don't really focus in on this. But the reality is that Jesus wants us to to feel the weight of his death. Jesus wants us to feel the weight of his sin. Jesus wants to feel the weight of everything that he is about to endure on the cross. He wants us to feel that, to see that. And so that's the purpose that Jesus tells these parables, to prepare our hearts for this. So I would read this, and I never understood why this parable jumped out at me as much. Maybe it's just I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm not sure. Because when I read, I'm like, okay, well, uh, sure, I get it, right? Like, God owns everything. God owns creation. God leases it out to us. We're wicked and sinful. God sends servants. We beat them up. God sends his son. We kill him. God shows up and kills everybody. That's basically the parable. And I remember reading this, like, what hope is in here? What does this mean for my life? What does this mean for me to live in the kingdom of God? I, I, never, I never fully grasped it. And then I realized that there's one other character in this story that I'd overlooked for years. There's one other character that I never even noticed. And as I was reading, it just jumped off the page at me. There's one character we never talked about. Did you see him? They're in verse 16. This is what it says. He will come. So that's God. So God is going to come and destroy That's judgment. Those tenets, that's the sinful people, the rebellious people. And then give the vineyard, which is the kingdom of God. He's going to give the kingdom of God to others. Well, who are the others? Did you see that? Who are the others? Well, friends, that's you. That's me. That's what it means to be a Christian. That God takes what wasn't yours and then gives it to you. That God takes what was stolen 
and then gives you his. That's what it means to be a Christian, that God now works through us as his church. That God takes what was wrong, makes it right, and gives it to you. That God takes your sin and gives you his son. God gives you the kingdom of God. You are the others. And then that God gives to you freely. God gives to you graciously. God gives to you lovingly. We call this grace. It's unwarranted, unmerited, unprecedented favor of God. You are the others. When we recognize that we're not the center, however, we are the others. And that God gives everything to us freely. That God takes our sin and gives us his son. God takes our worst, gives us his best. God takes our old life, gives us a new life. God takes our old death, gives us a new death. Our old nature with new nature. Our old desires with new desires. That God gives us God. God gives us the kingdom of God. God gives us the inheritance of God. God gives us the son of God. And that all we have to do to receive this great gift is to recognize we're not the center of our lives, but we are the others in the kingdom. That God does all the work. God creates. God sends his son. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose. God resurrects Jesus. God ascends Jesus, creates the kingdom, and then gives it to you freely. You get the gift of God, the promise of God, the hope of God, the glory of God, and the kingdom of God. That's what it means for us to be the others. It's grace. This is good news, right? It's amazing. That's good news. So, friends, here's the bad news. The bad news is we are the wicked tenants. That we are far more sinful than we could imagine. That we're far more wicked than we even imagined possible. That we rebel against God. We fall away from God. That we reject God. That we killed God. We are the wicked tenants. We killed God. But here's the good news. God died for us. The good news is that God died for us. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And he said, so that my death need not be a meaningless death. Let my life be the meaning they live. And that God exchanges the blood of Jesus that was on your hands for the blood of righteousness over your life. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. That God would take our sins and give us his sinlessness. That's good news. That's good news. That Jesus would be the reason that we live because of his death. So Jesus was thrown into a tomb. He was dead. He was buried. He was cold. He was lifeless. And he was alone. And then three days later, Jesus resurrected. And Jesus defeated Satan and sin and death and hell the grave. He defeated disease and destruction, and he gives us grace and mercy and redemption and salvation. That God's murder is our miracle. That's good news. That's really good news. So my question for you is, what are we doing with our lives? How are we building our lives? Is Jesus the foundation? Is Jesus the center Are you building from there? Are things falling down around you? We need to tear it down and build again. How are we living our lives? Are we, what areas are we like the wicked tenants? What areas are we walking with God and then walking away? God wants you to know that there is grace that is possible. That in your place, God gives you his grace. And that he is sending people to you through the Holy Spirit, through the church, through Christian friends, through family members, 
to lead you into righteousness, to say change is possible, and that no matter who you are or what you are walking through, God's grace is available for you. And we're about to experience 14 people who are going to walk this out in front of us. We're about to celebrate baptisms. And I can't think of a a more beautiful illustration of exactly what it is that Jesus accomplished. That as Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected, our friends are also going to be death, burial, and resurrection through the baptism. They're going to walk through the watery grave of baptism. They're going to be risen to new life in Christ as they celebrate exactly what it is to mean and live in the kingdom of God. I can't imagine what a beautiful picture this would be the week before Easter for you to visualize exactly what it is that Jesus is going to accomplish. So our friends are going to be baptized in just a sec. Our band's going to come up forward and they're going to play. As our friends are being baptized, here's what I want you to know. I want you to celebrate. I want you to rejoice. I want you to sing. I want you to deafen heaven with your worship. Because people are going to be changed into new life. And some of you in this room, you you need to be changed into new life as well. And that you feel it in your heart, that the Spirit is convicting you. That you're feeling it, that moment, you know this is the chance for you to come alive, for you to experience new life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get at, we're going to send the people who are going to be baptized out the front door. We got everyone, um, our team is ready and available to be able to serve you. And so if you're being baptized, maybe, not yet guys, not yet. So maybe today you want to be baptized. You didn't sign up, but you're a more spontaneous person. Don't worry, we got you, we got you planned as well. We have t-shirts available for you. So don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't let anything hold you back. We got t-shirts, right? We got shorts, we got towels. We thought ahead for you because you didn't know you were coming today. So we planned it. So we got everything ready for you. So what I'm going to do is this, okay? We're going to need some crowd interaction. I'm going to count down to, from three to one. And everyone who's being baptized, okay, I want you to run out the front door. If this is your first time and you don't, you don't, you don't know what you're, what's going on, but you, you want to be baptized, don't worry, we got you, okay? So I'm going to count down three, two, one. And then if you're being baptized, we're going we're gonna to stand, we're going to cheer, and everybody's going to celebrate for you. And then we want you to head out the front door. Our serve team's going to be there, ready to serve you, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to worship, we're going to sing, we're going to give, we're going to pray for one another. But for now, if you're being baptized, you go out that door, all right? So here we go, okay? Ready? Three. Don't wait. Don't wait. Three, okay? Don't make any excuses. Two, all right? Whatever's holding you back, it's not important. In eternity past, it's not going to matter. Don't let anything hold you back. Two. Okay, ready? Ready? One. Go. Guys, this is why we plant churches. This is why we do what it is that we do in this city. Think about the public display of the profession of their faith. In the center of downtown Beaumont, people are being baptized right outside of a bar. This is why we do what we do. In the year our church has been in existence, we've baptized, today will be over 30 people. In about a year. That's amazing. It means one third of our church has met Jesus in the last year. One third of our church. 
See, we exist to join God in the renewal of all things by making disciples who make disciples. Church planting is the greatest form of evangelism in the world. As people walk in who have no background in church, maybe it's been several years, they feel like they don't belong, they feel like they don't fit. This is why we plant churches. To see lives change forever. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.